Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, we'll begin at chapter 1, verse 12. Last week we began looking at these words of the preacher, in Hebrew, Koholeth, a word that sometimes means collector or teacher or preacher, one who stands in the role of Solomon, having a kind of Solomonic wisdom, and is trying to teach us what true wisdom looks like. But in order to do so, this preacher has to tell us the, the way the world is, not, not the way the world we want it to be. Um, that's, what, that's where true wisdom comes from. Uh, when, we, when we make up what we think the world is, rather than paying attention to the reality of the world, that's when we end up in folly. True wisdom looks hard at the world as it is so that we might lift our eyes from this world to a, the place above the sun where the true God is. And especially in this passage this morning, we're going to see how honest the preacher is about life in this world, the various dead ends to, down which we might go, which end up simply be a kind of chasing after the wind. But but in taking us down those dead ends, ultimately the preacher wants us to see what our true purpose is, what our, what, what our chief ends are, which has nothing less than to do with God. But in order to hear what the preacher has to say, we need, we need the Holy Spirit's help. So let's ask him for it. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you now desiring to hear the word of the Lord. Indeed, we, we, we desire to hear you, Lord, tell us the, the way the world actually is, not the way we want it to be. But we also want to hear what, what the true answers are to the questions that we carry with us. Lord, please guide the thoughts and intents of our hearts, we pray. Open our eyes of faith, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our section this morning begins in chapter 1, verse 12, and extends to chapter 2, verse 26. I'm going to read the, the first eight verses and the last three, and then we'll read the rest as we work our way through the passage. So chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Uh, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now chapter 2 verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting 
only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1977, the rock band Kansas was desperately trying to finish up their new album. The previous album, Left Overture, had actually put them on the map, finally, after several years of playing together. Um, Their hit song, Carry On Wayward Son, had propelled them to, to national prominence, and so they needed to follow up on that hit and the problem was the the new album they were working on didn't have an obvious hit single and so as they were desperately trying to finish the 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 record up for the record company Carrie Levgren who was the the guitarist brought in a song just a few days before Livgren had been just messing around at home with a finger exercise he used as he played guitar to, to loosen his hands up. And his wife was listening from the other room and she came in and told him, I, I like that melody. You ought, to, you ought to write a song with it. Livgren had been studying his Bible. He'd been trying to sort out a, a number of the deepest questions of his heart about meaning and purpose in life. And and he was particularly taken up with the book of Ecclesiastes, this section in particular. It would be a couple of years yet before Levgren would become a, a committed Christian, uh, a profession that he maintains to this day. But, but as he was wrestling with the biblical text, uh, a series of words came to him. And he wrote, I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams have passed before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but earth and sky. and All your money won't a minute, another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All there is is dust in the wind. Levgren brings it to the band. The band records it. And it ended up becoming their greatest hit. The only song they wrote that actually made it into the Billboard Top 10. Why did the strong strike a chord? Why did it strike a chord with with the general public? Even today, if you hear it on your radio or XM satellite radio or wherever you might hear the song, why why does that song dust in the wind? Why does it... Why does it continue to, to, to get into our hearts and heads and, and cause us to both sing along but also to wonder at the words? Well, I think it's because it, it puts its finger on the same kinds of questions that the preacher is asking here in Ecclesiastes. Why is life ephemeral? Why does it seem that life is passing, that we blink and it seems to be gone? Why is life so elusive? Like a, like a vapor, like a cloud, like mist, so that we're, we try to grasp it and it slips through our fingers. What, what gain or profit is there in all of our work, in all of our toil, here under the sun? The song, Dust in the Wind, seems to give the same answer as the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Where is our gain? Well, not much. Because our lives are only striving, only a chasing after wind. Five times in our passage this morning, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, and ending in chapter 2, verse 26, five times that phrase shows up, a striving after wind. 
the word picture there is something like a shepherding of the wind or a herding of the wind. Sometimes we use the expression, we've been going about trying to herd cats, something that's extremely difficult. Well, as difficult as it is to herd cats, it's that much more difficult to shepherd or herd the wind. And the preacher here is trying to get at something. What's the gain from all our toil? What's the gain from all of our chasing what this life has to offer? Not much. It's like herding or striving or chasing after the wind. And perhaps you're here today and you've been asking those kinds of questions, the same questions Carrie Levgren asked almost 40 years ago. What, what's the purpose of life? What is its meaning? Is there any profit from all of this work and toil that I, that I bring to bear in my life? What, what, what am I meant for? And as you've chased the wind down this road and that road, what you've discovered is that the various pathways that life seems to offer you, they're just dead ends. You go down this road, dead end. You trace down this road, trying to figure out life's purpose, dead end. You try this route, dead end. And because you face dead end after dead end after dead end, you perhaps you've concluded that, that your chase, your effort, your striving means that there's, there really is no meaning. There really is no purpose. That, that really all there is is nothing. All we are is dust in the wind. If that's you this morning, I want you to hear me. God's word tells you something different. This passage tells you something different. While our quest for meaning can lead us to several dead ends, God has made you for a purpose. He's made you for meaning. He has chief ends for your life. And when we pursue God's purpose and God's ends for our life, what we'll discover is real meaning and joy, real purpose Real hope. That's where the preacher is going, but first he has to show us a variety of dead ends that all too often we find ourselves chasing down. In fact, in this section, the, the preacher is, is employing a particular rhetorical model. He's trying to show us not this, not this, not this, but this. That's what he's doing. You, you chase down this road, not this. You chase down this road, not this. Chase down this, not this, but this is the right path. In fact, he tells us in our passage and what we read together that he has a kind of methodology. He's at work trying to show us something. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Again, verse 17. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. In other words, this is a, is a disciplined pursuit to understand what life is like under heaven, what life is like under the sun, human existence and all of its diversity and complexity. But what he tells us at the outset is that his discovery is that it's, it's not very hopeful. Did you see that in verse 13? He said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And that's the case, isn't it? 
When we as human beings chase down these dead-end roads and we get to the end of our quest only to find that, that, that the things we thought were going to give our lives meaning don't actually give our lives meaning, what do we say? Life is an unhappy business. An unhappy business. In fact, the preacher here wants to show us three dead ends we all too often try to chase down that can, can never actually give our lives the meaning for which we are looking. And the first dead end is the dead end of pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The preacher says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So in this section, it's as though the preacher has gone down to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, and he's shouting with the crowds, let the good times roll. He says in verse 1, as we read, I said into my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so the preacher pursues personal happiness, personal pleasure as the purpose and meaning of life. You saw this. He, he gave himself over to laughter in verse 2. Verse 3, he turns his heart to alcohol. Verses 4 and 5, he builds big houses, big gardens, big pools. Verses 6 to 8, he pursues wealth and property. The second part of verse 8, he gives himself over to sensual delight, to, to music and to sex. There was not a single pleasure that this world could offer that he denied himself. Verse 10 tells you, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And he's honest enough to admit there's a kind of temporary pleasure. There's a, there's a momentary sense in which laughter and, and alcohol and, and sex and music and, and wealth and property, they can communicate a kind of pleasure. You know this. You've chased them. But does it last? Does it last? No. It doesn't last. All is vanity. It's vapor. It's like smoke. We try to get our hands around it, and it's gone. Chasing after the wind. Pleasure, the preacher tells us, is a dead end. But not just pleasure. Prudence. Prudence, too, is a, is a dead end. He says in verse 12, 
So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's done, been done before. Then I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now here, in this section, the language is of wisdom, wisdom under the sun. And what I think he's getting at is a certain kind of prudence, uh, prudence in, in terms of how to operate, how to get things done, the social networks and connections that we need to leverage in order to advance ourselves and our cause, uh, kind of living, if you will, with the fabric of the world. And, and again, the preacher is honest enough to tell us that this kind of prudence, this kind of wisdom, it's worth something. He says in verse 13, I, I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly than as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Certainly it's the case that those who live wisely, those who live prudently in this world, who, who have connections and have a network, who know how to get things done, who live in line with the fabric of their, of their culture, of their, of their part of the world, they, they do have more gain, if you will, more kinds of profit in this life. And yet, the preacher wants us to see something that's really important. Namely, pursuing such wisdom, pursuing such prudence, if you will, as the main purpose or the, the way we get meaning out of our lives, it really doesn't confer any real lasting advantage because the wise, just like the fool, dies. We all die. And so, so the foolish person, the foolish man or the foolish woman, who we might look at and say, oh, well, there's a blight on society. Someone who doesn't know how to operate, doesn't know how to get things done. In fact, has made a total wreck of his life through his foolish decisions. He ends up in the same, at the same finishing point as the wise person who's utterly prudent, who knows how to get things done, who has a large social network, uh, uh, lots of contacts in their phone. They end up in the same place. They both die. The prudent person dies, the foolish person dies. That's what the preacher says. I perceive the same event happens to all of them. And if death really is an equalizer, so that we come to our dying day, we're really no better off, whether we're wise or foolish, then what's the point? What's the point of prudence? What's the point of wisdom? But there's another problem. And the other problem is not only is there no real advantage to prudence because we all die, there's no real advantage to prudence because we, we die and then we're forgotten. <laughs> That's what the preacher says in verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. We just die and then we're forgotten. And so what, what does it matter if we are wise or foolish, if we are prudent or blight on society? Prudence in and of itself is a dead end, just as pleasure was. But there's a third dead end the preacher has. Pleasure, prudence, 
but also possessions. He says in verse 18, uh, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use all my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Notice he's, he's not simply talking about toil as a chasing after the wind. He's actually talking about the fruit of that toil, our possessions, our, our wealth, our property, our stuff. And what he's saying is, is this, to, to build up a stockpile of possessions only to leave it to others who will squander it or who don't care about it. Verse 21, this is vanity. It's vapor, it's smoke, and a great evil. We wish we could take it with us, but we, we know we can't. And here's, here's the other reality. All of the possessions, all of the stuff that we try to acquire, our children and grandchildren might pick out a few, a few family heirlooms that they want to keep and pass on to the next generation, but the rest of it, they bring in a salvage company who pays them a price and it gets taken away. All the things we labor to acquire, our children and grandchildren don't put the same value upon them as we did. Which tells us what? Possessions are a dead end. They're a striving after a wind, chasing that which we cannot hold. Don't you see? These are all dead ends. Pleasure, prudence, possessions. Not only in the sense that, the, that these pathways don't actually lead us to what we desire, namely true purpose and meaning in life, but they actually, because they're dead ends, because we feel the frustration of them, they actually make us wish we were dead. They, they create a kind of despair. Did you hear the preacher say that? Verse 21, excuse me, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. If this is what life is all about, if this is what life means, pleasure, prudence, possession, that cannot deliver what they promise, then all is, is vanity and there's no hope. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy articulates this, I think, brilliantly and in short compass. He said at one point, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the very verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live is this, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live why wish for anything or, or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's a really good question. 
a really good question. Because friends, if, if pleasure and prudence and possessions are your only answer to that question, the preacher's telling you those are dead ends. For genuine meaning, for genuine purpose, for this life, those are dead ends. They don't deliver what they promise. And so is there any, is there any hope for us? Any place of joy? If, if these aren't the answer, does the preacher give us an answer to that question? That, that is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there an answer to that question? The preacher says yes. The preacher says yes. When we live our lives in line with our chief and main purposes, what we find is true joy. That's what the preacher said in the last section which we read together. Look at it again. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in, all, in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. It's also his vanity and striving after the wind. Now on the surface, it, the preacher seems to be starting with the same kind of hedonistic answer that he had already been looking at as he walked down the road of pleasure. But there's a difference. Here in this final section, the preacher roots the enjoyment of this good world and God's good gifts in our prior relationship with this God, in which we are, are glorifying God. Our chief ends involve glorifying God. Now, our Presbyterian hearts and minds immediately go to the, the first catechism question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's important for us to see that the preacher takes us here as well. That's his answer as well. As we live our lives in line with God's purpose for us, we find solid joys and lasting treasures. We find genuine fulfillment and bold purpose. And the, and the way the writer, the preacher, gets to this idea of glorifying God is through this language of pleasing him. Pleasing him. Twice he uses this language in verse 26. For the one who pleases him, for, excuse me, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. So, so how do we please God? Or to put it differently, how is God pleased in us? How does God take pleasure in us? Well, the rest of the Bible will tell us that. God takes pleasure in us as we are rightly related to him as we turn from our sin and we run to Jesus Christ, as we plead his blood and righteousness, as we do that, God looks at us in and through Jesus Christ and he takes pleasure in us. Just as God the Father delights in Jesus, his son, the Bible teaches us that when we are united to Jesus, God looks at us in Christ and is pleased with us, pleased in us. He makes his face shine upon us. Almost every week here at IPC, I, I use that benediction, the benediction from number six, the so-called ironic blessing. And, and I do so for two reasons. 
Um, the first is, if it was good enough for John Calvin, it should be good enough for me. Um, but the second reason is that language. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That, that's strange language. What does it mean? Well, you know what it means. Someone's face lights up. And you know exactly what that looks like. You're out in the rotunda area, and a two-year-old or three-year-old comes running up to you. Um, maybe your two-year-old or three-year-old, maybe somebody else's, and, and they grab hold of your leg, and you look down, and they look up, and their face is shining, and your face lights up too, because you see such joy. Or, or when you watch a dating couple, whether that's you <laughs> from years ago or even right now, or, or maybe you as a parent are watching your adult children now go through this process. I remember back to the dating parlor at Bob Jones University. Oh, the stories I could tell you about it. And Sarah and I sitting on the couch and, and her face was shining and my face was shining. They, they lit up, why? Because of the pleasure we took in one another. That's the idea. When God looks at you, he's not frowning at you. His face is lit up to see you. His face shines upon you. He takes pleasure in you. And because he takes pleasure in you, as we already affirmed in the catechism from Heidelberg Catechism, we want in turn to live our lives in gratitude to him so that we might keep, we might keep on knowing his pleasure. We might please him. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul prays for, for us and and for his first century church, the Colossians, when he said, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And what you have to understand is, is as we walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, knowing already that he his face lights up when he sees us. He is pleased in, uh, with us. That's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just an 11 o'clock in the morning thing. No, in fact, the Apostle Paul will say, perhaps reflecting on what we've just read, so whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to please him, knowing that he's already pleased with you. That's how we know meaning in this world. That's how we live out of our true purpose, our chief end. We do so seeking to live our lives in ways that please him, knowing that he's pleased with us. And when we do, what we find is that we begin to accomplish our other chief end. Namely, we enjoy God. What does the preacher say? Verse 24 again. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So think of this. After the service, as you go home, and as you enjoy your lunch, the enjoyment in your lunch, begin to think, is not just an end in itself. Boy, I enjoy this food. Boy, this is a good meal. Thank you for making it. But rather, the enjoyment in your food and in your drink is a means to the end of enjoying God. Perhaps this afternoon, no, it would probably be a little too hot, you head out to the gardens, to the Memphis Botanical Gardens or the Dixon, and you see the amazing flowers. And as you do so, looking at those amazing gardens isn't an end in itself. Rather, seeing that those amazing gardens is a means to the end of enjoying God. Or as you go about your work this week, 
and you engage in work and toil and sometimes suffer and struggle in your work, your working is not a means in itself. It's not, it's not the end in itself. Rather, your working is a means to the end of enjoying God. Thank you, Lord, for this good work you've given me. Thank you, Lord, that I'm able to bless my neighbor through this work. Thank you. As you go about your life together with a spouse or with your children or grandchildren or children with your parents, grandparents, with your friends as a single person, you engage in those relationships not as an end in themselves, but as a means to the end of enjoying God. Enjoying God in his good gifts of those relationships. Listen, as we go through our days united to Jesus, apart from whom we can do nothing, we learn that we can take pleasure in the profound things we do, as well as in the mundane things we do, because all of life has the possibility of allowing us and leading us to enjoy God. As we take pleasure in God and as we believe he takes pleasure in us, God is praised and, is, and our life's purpose is being fulfilled. Many of you remember the 1981 Academy Award winning film Chariots of Fire tells the story of two British runners, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little, who both ran the 100-yard dash and were preparing for the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Um, at one key point in the movie, Little, who was the, the son of missionaries to China and was preparing to head back to China. In fact, he would go back to China uh, and die in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. But in the scene, as his family and especially his sister Jenny are deeply concerned that his training for the Olympics is leading him away for God's purpose for his life. And Little said this, Jenny, I know that God has made me for a purpose, for China and for missionary service. But I also know that God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he could have added, when I run, I feel pleasure in God. Because when we live our lives out of the pleasure of God, and in order to enjoy God, we live in line with our chief ends. We're not chasing the wind. We're not going down the wrong dead ends that all too often this life and this world offers us. Rather, we come to know solid pleasures, pleasures at the Father's right hand, true joys that can only come through Christ. Friend, I ask you this morning, isn't that what you want for your life? Isn't that what you want? True joy? Isn't it? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we bless you for your great kindness that you do give us pleasures at the Father's right hand because you are the one who's been raised from the dead. You are the one who has ascended to the Father. You are the one who grants the Spirit. You are the one who does all of this good work in our lives enabling us to live in ways that glorify God and cause us to enjoy him forever. And so, Lord, we do pray this day that, that this service of worship and this meal we're about to come to would be yet another step along the pathway, the right pathway of true wisdom that we might live with true purpose and meaning. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.